I just told Steve at the start of the last service, I am like three for four the last few times wearing a microphone that I don't turn it on and I make his job miserable. Um, I am no longer to be trusted. I think that's clear what the message is. It's good to see you this morning. Uh, We're going to be looking at the story of David and Goliath that I think is so well known inside and outside of the church that it's become kind of a cultural metaphor. Like, it is what we talk about when we talk about, you know, this individual or this group of people overcoming insurmountable odds. Like, when the weak triumphs over the strong, when the scrawny kid beats up the school bully, right? Or when the Cubs triumph over pretty much anyone these days, right? Uh, You can protest, but it's still true. Um, If you've ever felt like you were up against unbelievable odds, or you were facing a mountain of difficulties in your life, then you know what it feels like to have a giant come crashing into your world. And if we're honest, when the giant comes, our first response is to try to ignore it. Or we try to outmaneuver it, or we try to outlast it. We try to rationalize the giant away. We'll do anything other than confront the giant head on. Why? (laughs) Because we're afraid of what might happen and what we might lose if we do. But we'll discover this morning that that's exactly what David did with the odds stacked against him. David chose not to focus on Goliath's strength or his size or his success. Instead, he chose to focus on the love of God, the protection of God, and the power of God. And my hope is this morning that as we take a fresh look at this very familiar story, through David's example, we'll figure out how to respond when, not if, the giants come into our life. So the story of David and Goliath is told in the book of 1 Samuel in the Old Testament by the prophet Samuel, and it's a long story. It's in chapter 17 of 1 Samuel. It's 58 verses long. So buckle up. We're going to read it all very slowly. No, we're not. I'm going to hit the high points in a couple of key verses in the story and remind us of what the story's about, and then we'll dive in and figure out some lessons that we can learn as we face giants in our life. So the story starts with this. The Philistines mustered their army for battle. King Saul countered by gathering the Israelite troops near the valley of Elah. And so the Philistines and the Israelites faced each other on opposite hills with a valley between them. That is a weird way to start a war. But it was common in that day. The two armies line up. They try to figure out who's going to make the first attack, who's going to launch the first salvo, and so they do that. But then this high-stakes game of chicken takes a turn when Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, steps out of the ranks and faces Israel. The Bible says Goliath was over nine feet tall. I have no way, like logically, to tell you the difference in size between Goliath and ordinary people of that day. Robert Wadlow was born and raised in Alton, Illinois. He is in the Guinness Book of World Record for being the tallest person in the modern era. And here are pictures. That is a young boy. The second picture, if it comes up, is of an adult woman standing next to him. He is massive in size. Now, when he was born, he was only 20 inches long. He was a very normal-sized baby, right? But when he started walking at 11 months old... He was three feet tall and weighed 40 pounds. 
That's a big kid. When he went to kindergarten at age five, he was five feet tall. I don't know that I could leave my five-year-old in the room with a five-foot-tall student sitting next to him, right? They said when he died, he was 22 years old. He measured eight feet, 11 inches, and he weighed over 400 pounds. And he was still growing. It's pretty fascinating, isn't it? The Bible tells us that Goliath was nearly a foot taller than Robert Wadlow. Goliath was a big dude. He was an infantry soldier in the Philistine army, so he was very skilled at hand-to-hand, close contact combat. He's a formidable foe at over nine feet tall, probably weighed close to 500 pounds. And his past successes gave him the courage to taunt the Israelite army. So he steps forward and asks these questions. He says, why are you all coming out to fight me? I'm the Philistine champion, (laughs) but you, I mean, you're only servants of Saul. So choose one man to come out here and fight me. Now, single-man combat was common in that day. It was a tactical move to limit the amount of bloodshed in the battle. But, but Goliath wants the Israelites to know this is a winner-take-all scenario. So he reminds them, if your best soldier kills me, then we'll be your slaves. But, I mean, if I kill him, you and all of your nation will be our slaves. So send me a man who will fight me. I defy the God of Israel, he says. When Saul... And the Israelite army heard this. They were incredibly afraid. And for 40 days, 40 days, morning and evening, the Philistine champion strutted, the Bible says. He strutted in front of the Israelites and taunted them and challenged them. And with every challenge that passed unanswered, Saul's credibility waned and all of the soldiers' hopes faded. It's now day 41, and this is where David enters the story. At 15 years old, David was deemed too scrawny, too small to be of any significance in a battle, probably more of a liability than an asset. And so as his older brothers went off to war, David was left at home. Day 41, he shows up in the presence of the army coming with a care package from his father. He brought food to his brother's who were presumably fighting in a battle. But what he also brought with him was a fresh perspective on their gigantic problem. As David is talking with his brothers, Goliath comes out and for the 81st time issues this challenge to the Israelites. And David looks around in shock at the number of men who literally run away from the battle. So David asks the soldiers nearby, what what is a man going to get if he kills this Philistine and ends his defiance of Israel? And there was quite a good package offered as a reward for any man who would defeat Goliath. It started with a massive amount of money. The second thing he would get is he would be given the hand of one of Saul's daughters in marriage. He would be in the royal family as a prince if he won this battle. 
And then the last thing, which I think is probably more attractive to any of us who live in the state of Illinois, is he and his extended family would live tax-free for the rest of their life. Now, see, now you're all in on the story, right? I mean, can you imagine if our government said, if you can solve this problem, you and your family will live tax-free in Illinois. Yeah, it's not going to happen. Um, so that's what was being offered. And in spite of this rich reward package that was offered, nobody stepped forward to fight the 500-pound giant. Seasoned soldiers were clearly afraid of Goliath. David, on the other hand, was offended by him. Who is this pagan Philistine anyway that he's allowed to defy the armies of the living God? From David's perspective, Goliath is not just challenging the army, he's challenging the authority of God. Who does this man think he is? David had heard enough, so at that point he goes and he talks to King Saul. I'll fight Goliath, he says. And understandably, Saul had a little trouble believing that this was going to be a smart decision to stake his entire army and his nation on a 15-year-old boy. I mean, David is a scrawny teenager. Goliath is a champion of the Philistine army. David has no battlefield combat. Goliath has tons of experience. But David persisted. Look, I've been guarding my father's sheep and goats at home, he said. And at this point, if I'm Saul, I'm starting to wonder, you know, really, what relevance does your 4-H project have in warfare, right? But David persists, and he says, when a lion or a bear comes to steal a lamb from the flock, I go after it with a club, and I rescue the lamb from his mouth. And beyond that, if the animal turns on me, I catch it by the jaw. Can you picture that? Like a lion or a bear turns to attack you, and you grab it by the jaw. He said he did that, and then he clubbed it to death. And if I've done this to lions and bears, I'll do it again to this pagan Philistine too. Not because I'm a better soldier. That's not what David was offering. Not because he has experience, because he didn't. He said, I'll do it because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the claws of the lion and bear will do it again with this Philistine. That's more than youthful, youthful courage. It's a strong statement about David's faith, even as a 15-year-old. It's all heard enough. I don't know if he gave in or if he agreed, but he simply says to David, all right, go ahead, and may the Lord be with you. With that, Saul stakes his future as king, the future of the army and the future of the nation, on David's success in battle. Now, in Saul's mind, this is going to be close contact, heavy hand-to-hand -hand combat, so he offers David his custom-made armor. Bible says David tried it on. It was really clunky and weird and not something he's used to. And so he says, thanks, but no. And he walks down to the stream, picks up five smooth stones and puts them in his shepherd's bag. And then armed only with his shepherd's staff, his sling and those stones, he starts across the valley to fight the Philistine. Now Goliath sees this tiny little kid coming at him, less than half his height probably, coming at him to fight him, and he laughs at the idea that David could do any damage. 
Am I a dog, he roars at David, that you've come at me with a stick? And he cursed David by the name of his gods. Come over here and I'll give your flesh to the birds and wild animals, he said. David's response was theologically rich and incredibly powerful. He looks at that giant and he says, you come to me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. Today, the Lord will conquer you and I will kill you and cut off your head. And then, and then I'll gather the dead bodies of your men and feed them to the birds and wild animals and the whole world will know there is a God in Israel. And everyone assembled here will know that the Lord rescues his people, not with sword and not with spear. This, is, this battle is the Lord's and he will give you to us. And with that, Something nobody ever thought would happen, happens. Goliath has had enough, he's heard enough, he starts walking towards David. And David's response is he starts running towards Goliath. And as he runs, he reaches into his bag, he pulls out a stone, and he puts it in the sling. Now, I don't know what you think of when you think of a sling. I always thought about a slingshot, you know, kind of had this little Y shape, and you pull the band back, and you can break glass in a barn window. Not that I ever did that. Um, this was not that at all. The sling was something different. It looks really primitive, but most of them were fashioned out of leather or string. There was this little pocket of uh, leather or fabric in the center that you rested the stone in. The straps would be about 20, 18 to 24 inches long, and then you just spin it to gain momentum, and you release. I don't think about that as a really formidable weapon against the 500-pound man. Do you? But historians say that slingers who were good at their trade could kill a bird in flight. Slingers who were good at their trade could maim or kill a human being at 200 yards. Scientists have formulated that the force from that stone leaving that sling would impact its target with the same impact as a 45 caliber bullet. So the moment David pulled out his sling, <laughs> the scales tipped in his favor. There would be no hand-to-hand -hand combat. History is now on David's side. Slingers always win over infantry every time. And so David hurled the stone. The Bible says it hit the Philistine in the forehead, and then the stone sank in, which means he crushed his skull with that stone. The giant stumbled and fell and died. Like most giants in life, this whole encounter blindsided David. He had no idea. He came just to bring food to his brothers and get a report to take home to his dad of how the war was going. He had no intention of fighting at all. And he ends up in his first battle against a gigantic world-class warrior. So what does David's story teach us about facing the giants in our life? I'm going to offer four simple ideas for you to think about, and then we'll be done. First, when we face giants in our life, it is always intimidating. I don't know what giant you might be facing today. 
But typically when we face giants and we avoid them or we try to outlast them, we start feeling a huge amount of shame and guilt. The truth is, we don't need to feel that. It is a common human experience through no fault of our own when we face a giant. Often, it's no fault of ours. The tough truth is this. Giants will come at us, and they will come at us more than once. More often than not, they come in the stillness of the morning or in the stillness of the evening, day after day, relentlessly trying to intimidate us. They hammer on our heart day in and day out, wearing us down. And when we feel that intimidation, it's hard not to look at God in light of our giants, but instead to look at our giants in light of our God. We overcome the intimidation when we adopt David's view that no matter what we face, it's not me that's going to win this. It's God who's going to win the battle. Two, facing our giants can be incredibly lonely. There wasn't a man in the Philistine camp or probably in the Israelite camp either who would have bet on David in that fight. He was absolutely alone. He walked out on the field alone. He called out to Goliath alone. He would fight Goliath alone. And unfortunately, that's how it is with most of the giants we face in life. Now, don't get me wrong. I believe it's incredibly helpful to have the supportive community when we are actually fighting a giant. But the cold, hard reality is there's not a therapist or a pastor. There's not a friend or a parent or a family member who can fight our battles for us. They can stand with us. They can encourage us. They can give us wisdom. But at the end of the day, our giant is our giant. And the lonely battlefield matters deeply because often that is where our faith is forged and strengthened. Third thing I think we can learn is this. Trusting God can be hard, but it is essential when we face a giant. There's parts of the story that just fascinate me. The Israelite soldiers had faith in God from the newest recruit all the way up to King Saul, every one of them, and yet Goliath rocked them to their core. In the end, their fears overcame their trust in God, and that was true of everyone in the camp except David. He deeply trusted that God was stronger than this giant. The soldiers looked out, and all they could see was, God's, it was Goliath's strength. But God knew that Goliath had some profound weaknesses as well. Over the past few decades, communicators like Malcolm Gladwell and scientists have dug into this story some to try to figure out this man who stood legitimately four feet taller than the average man in the Middle East would have been in that day. Why was that? What happens? There's a lot of speculation around it. They've dug in and discovered that most people who grow to an extraordinary height, suffer from a disease called acromegaly, which is a, uh, a, a benign tumor on the pituitary gland that causes an overstimulation of the growth hormone. Robert Wadlow, our 8 foot 11 inch dude from Illinois, he had it. 
And scientists suspect that not only Goliath had this, but his two other brothers that were of extraordinary size also had it. As the disease, acromegaly, progresses, it produces some very distinct side effects, including extreme nearsightedness and double vision. Knowing those facts, when we take another look at this story with David and Goliath, some interesting things come out. You see the story through that lens. You see clues of Goliath's weakness. He was led onto the battlefield by a young man carrying his shield. He was led to battle. When you look at it, you start to see that his failing eyesight might explain why he doesn't see David pick five stones out of the stream bed as he approaches Goliath. He has no idea that David's a skilled slinger. When we hear Goliath shout, come to me, we hear it as a sign of confidence, you know, Game of Thrones thing, just challenging, you know, whoever's going to fight him. When actually, that was a hint to Goliath's vulnerability. I can't see you clearly. I can't fight you from a distance. So come close to me. That's where I'm strongest. Goliath was nearly unbeatable in hand-to-hand combat. He was gigantic and he was powerful, but what the Israelites saw as his greatest strength was actually Goliath's greatest weakness. His size came at a cost and God knew the cost. Fully trusting God requires us to admit that we cannot see everything clearly about the giants that we're facing. Our information is imperfect at best. And faith calls us not to place our trust in God giving us a specific outcome, but trusting that God knows that our giants are neither as strong nor as powerful as we might believe them to be. One last point. When we remember and focus on our past victories, it builds our courage. Now, our general tendency, I think, at least I'll confess, it's my general tendency, and I'd like to think I'm normal. Um, Our general tendency is to recite the failures in our life, and we can do that in vivid detail. But often we're hard-pressed to give the specific details of when we faced a giant and God stepped in and won the day for us. I think one of the best things we could do this week, and I'm going to do this, I invite you to do it, is just start making a list. Make a list of the times when the odds were against you, when you were facing a giant, and God intervened. God did things that you had no idea he would do for you. He did things in your life that you had no idea how to even pray for. God stepped in and defeated that giant. With God's help, you did it. Doing that kind of reflection will help us see that we don't have to live another day with the fears that we have of a giant. We don't have to live with our worries. We can give it to him. We can give even our confusion to him. Because God promises to be our hope and our courage and our source of strength. And this giant I'm facing, it might be bigger than me, but it's certainly not bigger than God. 
hearing these stories again and again of how God intervened in our lives gives us the courage to face the giants that are going to come. Not because we possess superior knowledge, not because we possess superior power, not because we have insider information. Remembering how God has been faithful in our past helps us to trust him in our present. I don't know what giant you're facing today. In a room this size, there's no way I could know. It may relate to your job, to your family. It could be something about a roommate or your spouse or where you are in school. Your giant may be a person or an illness or a lawsuit or unemployment or some disaster that's pending in your life. I don't know what your giant is, but what I do know is that giants tend to create fear that depletes our energy and drains our faith. Maybe. Maybe you don't even know the giant, but you can sense his presence on the other side of the valley. Maybe you can't get a handle on what the giant is, but you know that giant is there, and soon he'll be taunting you. No matter what your giant is today, David's story gives us hope. God doesn't ask you to have all the answers. He just wants you to bend down and pick up five smooth stones and trust him. Go with whatever strength you have. He'll take it from there. You don't have to wear somebody else's armor, their solution to your giant and your problem. All you have to do is lean in and trust the God who knows you and your giant and loves you deeply. And when we do that, my guess is that we're going to see that giant is not as big as we thought he was.